<clears throat> Good morning, guys. My name is Ed. I'm the missions and outreach pastor here at my church, and uh, we're in week two of this God of the Underdog series that we started last week. Joel Walker started it, and he, this series is really about the excuses that we sometimes make up. Uh, we may feel like they're real, but excuses that we make up on, on reasons why we believe God doesn't want to use us. And Joel last week talked about King David, at least King David's early life, and uh, that, <clears throat> that he was just disqualified. He wasn't qualified enough. This is what David thought as a child, that he wasn't qualified enough to be used by God. And all of us, you, me, every one of us, have a history. Some are really, really rough, crazy, dark histories. Some of those histories aren't maybe so dramatic, but every one of our stories has a dark season or at least may have dark moments. I spent the first 10 years after I graduated from college in 1987 working every day intimately, closely with my dad. We had a very close relationship, and me and my, my, me and my mom and dad had a very close relationship, and I worked with my dad for between three and 4,000 days every day from can to cane. And over the course of that time, we drew even closer. We had a very tight relationship. And, and like a lot of you, more than likely, you didn't grow up in a Christian home. But unlike probably most of you, I grew up in a Jewish home. And it was a, a very Jewish home. And so we can kind of scoot ahead in time to, to January of 2002 the Lord saved me. It was January 17th, early in the morning, 5.45 a.m. The Lord saved me, and, and I went out to my parents' house that night to tell them what had happened. And they promptly ended their relationship with me. And they ended their relationship with my wife, Susan, as well. And I, that night, I called my brother and my sister. I've got an older brother and sister. And I called them to tell them what had happened. Just remember, the whole family is Jewish. Um, called my brother and sister, they cussed me out, screaming and yelling on the phone, and they ended their relationship with me and Susan. And I know that sounds crazy. You probably can't even get your arms around it, but that's, in fact, what happened. And it was weird because it was the most profoundly joyous, most amazing morning of my entire life that by evening seemed somehow to have turned dark. And I thought, how, how could something so awesome morph into this personal, real personal hurt and rejection literally in just a matter of hours. When one of my sons, Zach or Will, had a ball game, Zach was a, playing baseball and Will's playing football, and one of them had a game, my mom and dad would come to the game and they'd talk to the kids, they'd watch the game, they'd talk to the kids, they wouldn't even look me and Susan in the eyes and they would leave. And in fact, I remember a, a baseball game in 2004 and I was coaching third base and mom and daddy were in the, in the stands watching the game, and I had a cross necklace hanging around my neck, and I had a T-shirt on, so it was kind of bouncing out of the T-shirt when I was jumping up, acting like an idiot, coaching. And they saw the cross, and they started crying, and they left the game. So this really was a, a, a dark and, and painful sort of season of life, to say the least. And every day I felt like an underdog, and, it was, and I was like an underdog with a kind of a hurt-filled, pain-filled past. And there is a dude in the Bible who, uh, who has a pretty dark past as well. His name is Paul. Um, you can make a pretty good case that Paul's past should have disqualified him from ever being used 
by God. In fact, we could probably argue that God should have just taken Paul out. Paul was, uh, was a Roman citizen. He was from a city called Tarsus. Uh, he was a, Tarsus is a, was a city of distinction in Rome. It was a, a lot of aristocratic, you know, high, hoity-toity people that, that lived there. And that's where Paul was from. But Paul also was a Jew of Jews. And, and talking about himself in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, starting in verse 5, here's what Paul said about himself. He said, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I want us to look this morning in, at Acts chapter 26. We're going to look all over the place, but I want us to focus on Acts chapter 26. Starting, It's going to start in verse 4, and we hear Paul is, let me set the stage, Paul is testifying before King Agrippa, Governor Festus, and the court. Big shots. And I think this was one of the most powerful, if that's the word, most incredible opportunities that any pastor has ever had to preach the gospel. And at the end of the day, Paul was trying to convert, was trying to, was trying to win these guys over to Christ. And he began by discussing and describing his past in his own words. So he's in front of King Grippa, Governor Festus, and, uh, and the court. And in Acts chapter 26 and verse 4, he begins to describe his past to them. He says, The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And Paul identified himself with one of the most self-righteous, arrogant groups that the world has ever seen to say the least at that time uh, they were definitely the most arrogant group of the day and Paul spoke boldly about his dependence on himself on his own abilities on his own skills not only was he arrogant but he was vindictive and he was vengeful as well uh, chapter 26 goes on in verse 9 and this is Paul again he's testifying he says I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. And he wasn't just prideful and he wasn't just arrogant, but he worked diligently to persecute uh, all the Christ followers that he could find. And he said in verse 10, he said, On the authority of the chief priests, I put, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So think about that. This joker, everywhere he went, every which way he turned, under every rock, every door that he opened up, if there was a Christ follower, he was either doing it or he was having them put to death. And Paul spoke about it all the time. In Galatians chapter 1, in verse 13, Paul said that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 9, Paul wrote, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So let's jump back to Paul's testimony in front of Agrippa Festus in the court. In verse 11, Paul says, Many a time I went from synagogue, from one synagogue to another, to have them punished. I'm talking about Christians, to have them punished. 
and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul, in his own words, admittedly was obsessed with, with persecuting and torturing and killing Christians. So if there was ever a guy, ever a guy that, <coughs> that whose past was too bad to be ever be used by God, this was the one. Of, of all the people, it's just like how God works, of all the people that he could have used in, in Israel in that time, he picks the one who's running around killing folks. Paul's past made him an underdog, a jacked-up, twisted underdog, but an underdog nonetheless. And here's what God does. And I, you want, I had this image of God giggling when he does this, and it's probably stupid, but amazingly enough, this guy who's running around killing folks, a Jew of Jews, God chooses to use him to write, to pen, two-thirds of the New Testament. So two-thirds of the New Testament that you're reading is written, letters and stuff, written by this guy who was doing these things. And his words continue to be used today to influence billions of people. So today, here's what I want to do today. I want to give you four, four, one, two, three, four, four points about how God deals with, with our past, my past and your past. What does he do with it? And these are pasts that, that we very well may be ashamed of, our past that we very well may think or believe disqualifies us from being used by God. It may be a past that we may believe even disqualifies us from heaven. And it begins with what, Paul, what my first point is in Paul's testimony, and that is Paul had a life-altering experience. So back to Acts 26, chapter 12, he's still, uh, excuse me, Acts 26, starting at verse 12, he's still testifying in front of Agrippa. And he says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions, and we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and, and it's Jesus talking, but talking to Saul, Saul. He calls him Saul because he had not changed his name yet to Paul. Same guy, but at the, he was born Saul of Tarsus. So Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? God literally knocked him off his high horse. Paul was on another mission trip heading to Damascus to find and torture and persecute and murder more Christ followers when he had a life-altering, crazy experience encounter with a living God. He was literally knocked off his horse and his guys were knocked off their horse by this light. And from this light, he heard a voice and he was confused by that voice. And in verse 15, Paul says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. So, bam, it was the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the guy that Paul was so violently opposed to. And it was in that moment, Paul's laying uh, in the dirt on this road, and in that moment, he had a cataclysmic, unbelievable, life-changing moment. In that moment, flashing, you got to think, in that moment, flashing uh, through his mind's eye, must have been all of the junk that he'd done, all of the, the, you know, the throwing stones when Stephen was, Stephen was one of the Lord's disciples. Paul was there. Paul put his stamp of approval on it. And so going through his mind may have been all that stuff 
um, that he had done for the last 10 years. Who knows? He may have been laying in that dirt on that Damascus road thinking that God was just fixing to choke him out. I, I, I don't know. I just think of what I would have been thinking had I been the one laying there. And I know that overcoming our past many, many, many times begins with a life, some life-changing experience. We've all even coined this phrase to have a come-to-Jesus moment, a moment when we realize that our life may not be the most pleasing thing to God. For Paul, it's lying in a heap of dirt on that Damascus road, and he was instantly brought face-to-face and nose-to-nose with all of his junk, and he was instantly brought face-to-face and nose-to-nose with a living God, and it rocked him to his core. This was really the come-to-Jesus moment of all come-to-Jesus moments in his life. Paul's life would never be the same. When I was 36 years old in January of 2002, I had a little Damascus Road experience. I was one of those guys that thought, uh, I just thought I was okay like I was, a decent guy, reasonably clean criminal history, no drug addictions, no, uh, no alcoholism. I didn't need saving. I didn't even, honestly, I didn't even know what that meant. Saved from what? I had no idea what that meant. My past was a past of indifference. Um, was it dark? Fifteen years ago, if you'd asked me if it was dark, I'd have said, no, it's not dark. Um, I wouldn't even have known probably even what that meant, but I would have said, no, it's not a dark past. But it was dark because I was spiritually dead. I was in the dark. It, I might as well have broken every commandment in those scriptures. And it was dark because if I'd have walked out of my office and got run over by a bus, I would have woke up the next day straight in the pit of hell. So yeah, it was dark, but I probably wouldn't have said it that way. And my little Damascus Road experience was on Reed Avenue right at the end of the runway, at, uh, behind the runway at the airport. And about 5.45 in the morning on January 17th, the Lord saved me. And it was the scales of indifference were just removed from my eyes, and I saw him. It was just as real as if he was sitting in the truck driving down the down the road to me. And it was in that moment that I believed, really believed, that what I believed was really real. And so I ask you, do you believe that what you believe is really real? Because you do, in fact, believe something. You may pretend and you may walk through every day pretending that you don't believe something. You do believe something. You just got to look in the mirror and ask yourself, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Is he or she or it or, I don't know, whatever, some little statue, is it really real? you got to ask yourself that question. And I don't know really what that looks like for you, but I know that the first step in overcoming your past and leveraging it for your future begins with a come-to-Jesus moment, your own little Damascus Road experience. And if you've never experienced that before, I would ask you to consider get alone and just Pray. Pray for the truth, but just pray. And that this Bible, it couldn't be any more clearer than in, in its statement that God diligently rewards those who seek Him, who really, truly, honestly, objectively seek His face. And if you do that, you can come away with no other answer, but He is who He says He is. And so um, it's going to bring me to point two in what in what happened on this Damascus road and that is that Paul had to get up so let's jump back into his testimony his, his testifying in front of a in front of Agrippa 
And after Jesus had gotten Paul's attention, remember the, 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 the light knocked him off his horse? Um, and I love what happens next. After Jesus gets his attention, grabs Paul's attention, he says to him, now get up. This is Jesus talking to Paul. He says, get up and stand on your feet. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't let Paul stay on the ground in condemnation and in guilt. He tells Paul to get your tail up. In other words, he's saying to him, yeah, I had to knock you down a few pegs. Yeah, your past has maybe taken you off your feet a little bit, but that is not the way that I want you to live your life. One of the greatest weapons that Satan uses is condemnation and guilt. It's like the little pitchfork dude on your shoulder who is constantly telling you how crappy you are. That is his greatest weapon. He is the deceiver of all deceivers, and you've got to combat that. Condemnation will tie your hands and tie your feet in a knot if you will let it. And so I'm a, I'll ask you, do you today you're sitting here, do you feel like that noose is wrapped around your neck and it's just getting tighter and tighter and it's killing you? And here's what Jesus said about that in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that does not mean that the problems just go away. It doesn't mean that at all. That's a deceiver telling you that it does mean that, so then when it doesn't happen, you're going to call God a liar. So, but what it does mean is that you don't have to bear the burden alone. You, you shouldn't bear the burden alone. God pleads with us not to bear the burden alone. And there's a, there's a British pastor from the early 1900s, and I, I want to quote him because he said it way better than I ever could. And here's what he said. He said, The fatal mistake for the believer is to seek to bear life's load in a single collar. God never, ever intended... A ma- I added the ever in there. God never, ever intended a man to carry his burden alone. Christ, therefore, deals only in yokes. And a yoke is a neck harness for two, and the Lord pleads to be one of the two that is in that yoke. So the secret of peace and victory in the Christian life is found in putting off the taxing collar of self and accepting the master's relaxing yoke. So when Jesus told Paul to get up, he was saying there's no room, there's no time for any of this guilt and condemnation to rule your life. And don't forget that Paul had a jacked up past and Jesus was telling him, pull your pants up and, and get up. Jesus said, you're not condemned, and if you keep living like you're condemned, you're going to tick God off. God, God does, in fact, get ticked off. And so don't live that way because that really, that is the result. And the Jewish world that Paul lived in at the time, it thrived. I mean, it thrived on guilt. They, they all loved pointing out the other guy's sin. Thank God we don't do that today. But unfortunately, the world we live in today, to include inside most churches, do the exact same thing. People love to find somebody that's more messed up than they are and then shout it out to the world and shout it out long and shout it out loud. And so if we are ever going to overcome and leverage our, our past for our future, We've got to let go of that guilt and we've got to let go of that condemnation that's trying to, 
to suppress us and keep us down. Look, if Jesus didn't want Paul to live that way, he surely doesn't want us to live that way. What did he say? He said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So what are the condemning voices that you are living under today? What voice rings out loud in your ear every time you want to step out and fulfill a dream? And maybe it's a parent that told you a thousand times that you would never amount to anything. Maybe it's a teacher or a coach that told you you were a failure and you'd always be a failure. Maybe it's your own little voice in your head that tells you all the time that you don't deserve some opportunity that may be coming your way. And I'm telling you right now, you've got to squash like a bug. You've got to squash those voices, those voices that are trying, trying to, to point to your dark past rather than to your bright future. And the good news is that the more that we, you and I, can silence those voices, the easier it becomes to silence those voices. It's just like anything else. The more we can do it, the easier it'll, it'll get to do it. And it's not that they go away forever, just poof and they're gone, but with time and with, with perseverance and with prayer, they'll get quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. And the key to, is to replace those voices with the truth. And it's the truth of who God says you are. And he uses this to, to, to speak to us and to impress upon us the truth. And so replace that junk with the truth of who Jesus says we are. Jesus told Paul, uh, which gets to point my, me to point number three, that Paul knew who Jesus said he was. Jesus po- told Paul to get up and stand on your feet. And the very next thing he said was, I have appeared to you in verse 16. So when Paul saw who he was in light of Jesus, condemnation took off like a dog up under the fence. The most powerful way, again, to silence those words of guilt is to replace them with words of truth, with words of truth of who you and I are according to Christ. I did a little word study on the words you are. Most people do word studies on big theological words, but I did a little word study because I want to know what is this thing, what does this Bible say about who, who you and I are? And when we can get our arms around who Jesus says we are, those words are going to overwhelm the dark words of what maybe the world says you are. And it may be your boss. It may be uh, some people around you. It may be a teacher. It may be a coach. It may even be your family who use words like good for nothing or addict or failure, or stupid, or I don't ignorant. I don't know what those words be may be. But here's what I found the scripture, what the scripture says that we are in Christ. In Jesus, we are we are friends of God. In Jesus, we are beloved. In Jesus, we are precious. In Jesus, we are highly esteemed. In Jesus, we are children of the one true king. In Jesus, we are known. We are more than conquerors. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And we are no longer a slave. Chapter 8 of Romans, in verse 1, what does it say? It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does it say no condemnation? No, that was weak. No condemnation. Does it say some condemnation? No, it does say a little bit. No, it says for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. So the more that we know about 
who Jesus says we are, the less and less we will believe who our past says that we are. The more light we let in, the more darkness we can push away. Do you believe today, do you believe today that you are who Jesus says you are more than you believe who the world says you are? Ask yourself that question. Paul asked himself that question, and, and, and which will bring me to point number four. Paul's pain and Paul's past became Paul's platform. Jesus didn't intend uh, to forgive Paul of his past and rid him of all that condemnation and guilt just to do that. He intended to leverage all that junk to impact other people's lives. In fact, it was precisely because Paul experienced what Paul experienced in his past that positioned him perfectly to be used by God from that point on. I told y'all earlier that about the last 14 years or, or, or so ago that my family ended their, or my mom and dad and brother and sister, ended their relationship with us. And about two years after that, and they had not spoken to me or Susan, about two years after that, I called my mom and dad and I said, I want to I go to lunch and I want to talk because I wanted to figure out some way to make, and you can't make somebody believe, but I wanted to figure out some way to make them believe that I was not the traitor they thought I was. I was not the, you know, the turncoat, and they thought that, that I was a nutbag for believing what I believed. And so we met it, and they said, okay. And we met at O'Charlie's at high noon for lunch, and it turned bad and went south in about 10 minutes. And it ended with my red-faced screaming at the top of his lungs, Dad, in the parking lot, as I was, my truck was pulling away. Um, and I remember sitting on the edge of my bed that night being sad and feeling like I had lost my brother and my sister and my mama and my dad. And I remember talking to Susan about it, and I'm like, why do I have to choose, keep choosing between my God and my family? And it made me think about Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I have thought about that passage, that verse, so many times over and over in the last 14 years, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And if you ask me if the decisions years ago were hard, I would say, no, they're not. The main decision, it's not hard at all. It's easy decision. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm absolutely not ashamed of the gospel. So it's not a hard decision but the hurt and the pain from my family's reaction to the decision is real. I mean, you can't pretend that that's not real. And it really does, in fact, hurt. But here's what God does with that stuff. That pain and that hurt has become my platform because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I wouldn't trade the pain, that pain for anything in the world because that pain drove me to a place where I, where I well, ultimately it drove me into the Lord's arms. But it drove me to to try to do things to deepen my relationship with the Lord every day over the last 14 years and was it dark for sure it was it was dark but it's become the pain dark but it has become my platform it's almost like that pain became a license to speak and preach and write and share and inspire another human being when the opportunity presents itself so if God can do that for Paul and God can do that for me, and I'm just an ordinary, plain old guy, and uh, um, it makes me think. It makes me think about David. This is a rabbit trail. It makes me think about David in Psalm eight. 
David's in the, he's out in the desert, he's on the run, and he doesn't have all these street lights blocking uh, the view of the sky, and he's laying there, and he looks up in the sky, and if any of you have ever seen a sky where there's no street lights and no ambient light from a city, it's unbelievable. So David is looking up at that, and David, and here's what he pins, what David wrote in Psalm 8. He says, when I look at the heavens, the moon, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars, which you, and he's talking to the Lord, which you have set in place, who am I that you even would care the slightest little bit about me? I'm nothing on my own, although now, now I have a right understanding of who I am in God's eyes. And I really am a, ch- a child of the one true king. Matthew West if you've ever heard of Matthew West, Matthew West um, recorded a song called Hello, My Name Is. And Matthew West is one of these guys that I think he did it on his first tour. He told everybody, all of his fans and anybody that he came in contact with, send me your stories, send me your stories. And every one of his songs is somebody else's story, and he makes a song out of it. So this, this song, Hello, My Name Is, is about a kid named Jordan. <coughs> and Jordan... Uh, well, Jordan introduced himself, hello, my name is Jordan, and I'm a drug addict. But it wasn't always that way. Jordan was a kid of a preacher. Uh, Jordan was a star athlete in high school. Jordan was a straight-A student in high school. Jordan went to college on a track and field scholarship. Jordan was an All-American his freshman year of college. Jordan broke his ankle his sophomore year of college, and that's when a doctor introduced him to oxycodone. And in about six months' time, he had flunk, or six or eight months' time, he had flunked out of school, and he was horribly addicted to oxycodone. And he found himself in a program called Teen Challenge. And some of you may may not have heard of Teen Challenge, actually based out of Columbus, but this was in this was a Teen Challenge center in Florida, and it's a year-long recovery program. And so Jordan, when he finished that recovery program, um, that's when God really began to get his attention. And, and here's what God reminded Jordan of in the boundaries of that Teen Challenge program. He said, you don't always have to be owned by that title. So he graduated from that program. He goes back to the school that threw him out. He gets a bachelor's degree, and then he get a ma- gets a master's degree, and he's a teacher and a coach today, and he introduces himself as, hello, my name is Jordan. I'm a child of the one true king. And I want to play a minute, a little more than a minute of that song, and I want y'all Listen to the words of this song. Just a, a little clip of it. Lord, my name is regret. I'm pretty sure we have met. Every single day of your life, I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. Amazing grace. 
God, hello, God wants desperately, desperately to use your brokenness, your pain, your hurt, your dark past as your platform for your future, your past, your drugs, your alcohol, your horrific childhood. Whatever it is has the potential to become your greatest platform if you will just give it to him and let him mold it and shape it and twist it and build something out of it to bring him glory. And I'm sure that there's a bunch of people sitting out there today that just sit and curse your past. And my challenge to you is to stop. Stop doing that. You're so busy being angry at your regrets and your past that you're giving in to the power that's in them to be transforming agents of the Holy Spirit in the lives of other people. Stop minimizing your past or even trying to pretend that it doesn't even exist. Look, Jesus told Paul why he was rescuing him from the darkness of his past. And it, back to our, his, test, his testimony in Acts 26 and starting in verse 16. He says, now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending, sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by what? By faith in me. Jesus wanted to leverage Paul's past so that other people's eyes can be opened. Your story, too, has the power to open somebody else's eyes to Jesus like nothing else can. Paul didn't tell them Agrippa and Festus and them. He didn't tell them to go read the latest self-help book. He told them, I met a dead man. I saw him real on that Damascus road. He said, I had an encounter with the living God. And every one of you that is a Christ follower has a story. And you have a God moment. And you have a Damascus road experience. Every one of you has got a story that can help turn somebody's darkness into light. And I want to tell you this. Consider maybe, just maybe, that God has uniquely allowed the events of your life to be as they are so someone else can find relevance in them. I'm going to say that two times. Consider maybe that God has uniquely allowed the events of your life to be as they are so that someone else can find relevance in them. When people see you, they see your life, your potentially horrific, horrendous darkness and past. When they see that and they see you walking in freedom and liberty and, and, and a peace that eclipses even what our brain can wrap around, God's going to use that to inspire them to want it too to inspire them to seek the same healing, the same freedom, and the same forgiveness. So if your past is still haunting your future, take a minute and try to dig it out. And maybe even, maybe even embrace it because your life is too short and your story is far too important to keep letting your past wreck the future. So I want to tell you just a little bit about the, last, uh, the rest of the story as, as it relates to the rejection and all of the junk with my family and what's gone on in the last 14 years. When I got saved, my kids were nine years old and six years old. Zach was nine and Will was six. Four years later, when Zach was 13, he got saved. Three years after that, Will made Jesus the leader and forgiver of his life. In 2011, my brother's youngest daughter, Jenny, got saved. She was a freshman at Georgia. Um, last year in 2015, my brother's youngest son, Benji, got saved. 
seven or eight years ago, God started doing something with my, with my hardcore dad, and somehow through an illness, he told me that he loved me. And I'm not whining, but that's the first time in my life I ever remember him saying those words. And it was like that our relationship, my dad and my relationship were healed. And over the last four or five years, the two of them are reading the Bible. They never read a Bible, ever read a Bible, but they're reading the Bible. And I don't know what God is doing with that, but I know this word doesn't return void ever, ever, never. It may not be in my lifetime that that pays a dividend, but it's going to pay a dividend. And they're not Christ followers yet, but I'm telling you, He's up to something, and I just, he didn't tell me what he's up to. Two weeks ago, my oldest son, Zach, got married, and Will was the best man, and I got, had the unbelievable honor of officiating uh, the ceremony. And he and Kelly had asked me, we want the gospel preached at the wedding. Black and white, crystal clear, we want Jesus preached at the wedding. And I'm thinking, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. A third of the people that are going to be at that wedding are going to be Jewish but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I called my mom and dad uh, a couple of months before the wedding because they don't know that I'm a pastor. I called them to tell them, don't freak out when you get there. And I'm standing up there with Zach and, and Kelly. Anyway, I just, didn't wa- I just didn't want there to be an issue, but I didn't know what they, would, what they would do. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and it kept popping in my mind. And I would be lying to you if I told you that the night before the wedding um, that I didn't have a few butterflies, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 7 o'clock, May 13th, it's go time. It's just two weeks ago. 7.30, the wedding is over, and Brother the Gospel was preached. And right before that picture was taken, 10 minutes maybe, uh, look at at Eric Trump on the side over there. Um, Sorry about that. That was an aside. Uh, I wasn't sure how my parents were going to react. 10 minutes before that picture was taken, my dad comes walking up to me. Five minutes after the wedding, a little bit before the picture, and I thought, oh, my God, what is my dad going to say? And he walked up, and I said, well... And he said, that was a beautiful ceremony. You have no idea how unreal it is that he said that. And so I have no idea what God is up to, but here's what I know. I know that 14 years ago I had a life-altering, life-changing experience. I know that I had some major darkness for a long time. I know that Jesus didn't let me stay down in that darkness. I know who I am in him. I know that God is sovereign and that he has a plan for my life, and he's using that to share the gospel, and that he's using that to bring glory to his name. I know that my story will continue to be my platform, and I know that he wants to leverage all of that stuff to lead people to the foot of his cross. But here's more than anything what I know to the very core inside of my brain and inside of my heart is that he doesn't want any of you to wallow around in guilt and condemnation, that condemnation of your past. He wants you to get up because he's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for every, every one of us. And he wants to leverage your story to be your platform. My story or his story can't be your platform. But you got a story and he wants that to be the platform to be used for his glory. He wants to take all of your junk, the good, the bad, and especially the junk, and mold it and shape it and twist it and turn it into something that's going to help another human being walk from darkness into light. And so I want to ask y'all, if you're tired of being yoked to something other than Him, make a decision today to let Him be the other person on the second harness. 
because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we love you this morning. Lord, we believe that you are exactly sorry, who you say you are. And Father, we, we, we know that you desperately want for us to, to be yoked to you. And I don't know why it is. I have no clue that some of us have scales on our eyes and, we, and you want to rip them off. And Father, I pray that if there are people, in, and I know there are, that there are people in here that either they think their past is going to hold them back, uh, Father, they think they're disqualified, or maybe it's not even that, that they just are indifferent about it and they're walking around every day thinking that they're okay, but they're not okay. And so, Father, my, my, my prayer to you today is to just remove the scales from those eyes. And, and Lord, we lift this church up to you and the body here up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You unravel me with 